Hello, welcome to CMAJ Podcasts. I'm John Fletcher, Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ, and with me on the telephone is Ken Flagel, Senior Editor. So I'm reviewing the February 3rd issue of the journal, and on the front cover we have uh, congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. And in the journal, this issue, there are, in fact, two uh, research articles to do with quite rare founder mutations in uh, Inuit peoples. Ken, I think you went and uh, got one of these in from a pediatric research conference you went to. What uh, made you go for some rather sort of recherche research to go in the journal? Yes, I was at the Canadian Pediatric Society meeting in Montreal this spring and met Dr. Celia Rod, who's the senior author on the paper on glycogen storage disease, and they've discovered a a new gene uh, for the type 3A in in the Inuit in the area that she was studying, and used some rather clever sleuthing efforts to determine where on on which chromosome and in which gene it was. Uh, It is a recognized gene that's seen in North Africa, and this is thought to be uh, a locally founder effect mutated gene. Ken, can can you remind me what a founder effect is? Yes, so that's a good question, John, and I had to refresh my own memory, but it's a, it's a newly um, introduced gene into a population that's closed off from um, rebreeding with a, a wider um, genetic pool such that uh, the gene can be passed on to the progeny within the community, and it can arise from an immigrant coming in, and that's very typical of what's happened in the Lac-Saint-Jean area of Quebec amongst uh, French Canadians. Or it can arise de novo in a population such as our Inuit, and that's thought to have been the case in, in the glycogen storage disease. So it, the problem for the Inuit is there just aren't a lot of potential mates around, and, and uh, the genes do tend to get passed along. And that seems to have happened with the second paper as well, the uh, sucrose isomaltase deficiency. And they've actually been able to account from the genes that they've found for the frequency of its occurrence when they screen generally in both populations. So this seems to be the sole cause of each of these diseases. The good news is that these populations can now be screened and receive genetic counseling. The children can be identified early in their lives and there is dietary modification available for the sucrose isomaltase deficiency to prevent the awful osmotic diarrhea and wasting these children get. And there will probably be enzyme therapy for the glycogen storage disease, but it's also assisted by uh, dietary modification. Yes, the thing that struck me about the the case described for the uh, sucrase isomaltase deficiency gene was that uh, although there's a spectrum in people who are homozygous for the gene, the particular case they described here, the, the, the child was extremely ill from uh, the, the time that the child started taking milk um, onwards and I think would have died with, without, uh, without having sort of diagnosed what it was. But having recognized the condition, the, the child was sort of almost symptom-free on, on a diet um, uh, that eliminated um, sucrose. Right. So, in fact, we, ha- we have a commentary to go with these two papers by Dr. Jane Evans, and she points out the earlier screening implications that I mentioned, but also points out that in each of these papers, the presentation or the sort of expression of the disease was variable, even though the genes were identical. So that makes uh, clinical identification of cases a little bit problematic, and having the ability to screen for the genes is going to help these people and their doctors quite a lot in knowing who does and who doesn't have one of these autosomal recessive diseases. 
No, thanks. And it's it's worth remembering that we, uh, we we do give a little bit of preference to papers about circumpolar health in the journal. John, you've written an editorial for us this month, and it's about um, an old topic, which is ethical approval for studies involving human subjects. The um, Helsinki Agreement has been around since since just after the Nuremberg hearings. Why are we writing about the topic at this point in the journal? Well, the established ethical guidelines for research are based on um, experiments in humans, which, of course, is what prompted the Nuremberg trials. But a lot of research done these days is, is not just experimental research, but um, observational studies, database studies. And um, it's been tempting, I think, for researchers to think that they don't need ethical approval for certain types of research Typically, that would be quality improvement or, or audits. But the two major groups that issue guidelines on, on ethics in publication, that would be the um, Committee for Publication Ethics, COPE, and the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors, ICMJE, uh, both give guidance that all research should be judged by a third party, an institutional review board or, or ethics committee, to decide whether uh, it's been conducted in an ethical manner or not. Researchers themselves are, have too much of a competing interest to decide whether their research was ethical or not. So I'm uh, just advising um, our readers that more stringent guidance is coming into place, requiring people to check with a third party that their research is conducted to ethical standards. Um, and so are the main changes for us editors or are they for authors? Well, it behoves the author to ensure that they're not going to fall at the final hurdle with um, either CMAJ or uh, another major journal, because they may well be asked, uh, has your study received either ethical approval or exemption from approval? And we'll be looking for a, a letter from a body such as an IR, IRB. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that uh, every piece of research, uh, no matter how uh, routine, has to go to a full committee. It's quite within the realms of of IRBs to have a fast track or a screening procedure that enables them to say that uh, research does not need uh, full ethical approval. But we will be looking for that letter saying that um, someone other than the researcher has decided that this piece of um, research or study has been judged um, ethically sound. Thank you, John. So in the commentary section, in addition to the genetic diseases commentary, we have one on the old sodium question. And the topic is quite well covered off by, by Dr. Cairns and McLeod in their, in their commentary because they are pointing out that these people are debating about whether we should be eating 2,300 milligrams or 1,000 milligrams of sodium a day. And the worry is that if you eat too little, you may... Um, impair your coronary circulation and get a heart attack or your cerebral circulation and get a stroke. But as these uh, commentators point out, the population is generally consuming about 5,000 milligrams of sodium in any case in our diets, and the struggle is really about getting rid of the great excess of diet, dietary sodium and waiting for more resolution on how low we should go. And related to that, one of the uh, papers we have is an update of the guidelines on hypertension. What are they about, John? It's the CHEP guidelines, uh, Canadian Hypertension Education Program, and there are various updates to the evidence uh, behind the new guidelines. 
uh, in 2013-14. And uh, you're right, there's quite a big section on sodium. seems to be that, that there are things that are not controversial about sodium. Uh, so patients with hypertension who are consuming a lot of salt should cut down. And uh, when these people cut down their salt consumption, then there's really quite a, a clinically important reduction in high blood pressure and uh, I- improvement of uh, all the health-related outcomes that you would expect from a reduction in high blood pressure. Um, but as you say, Ken, that, that uh, clear message has become become somewhat mired by the... Um, the question of whether population interventions for everybody to reduce their salt, regardless of whether they have hypertension or not, and um, everybody to reduce their salt levels, regardless of their um, of their level of consumption, uh, those seem to be the two areas of, of controversy. And one of the problems is that a lot of Canadians eat a fair amount of their food outside the home these days. CMHA published a paper a few years ago showing that restaurant food was particularly high in salt and the restaurants agreed to uh, voluntarily reduce the sodium in their food. So we have a paper in the coming edition of CMAJ Open, which is a follow-up study to see if the restaurants have made any progress. And yeah, did, did, did they, they having, having agreed to voluntarily cut um, sodium levels, did they actually do that? Yeah, so the analysis showed that... Um, of restaurants made no change, and uh, 16% actually increased their salt. So that's, uh, what, 70% have uh, done nothing or made it worse, and 30% have made some decrease. I'm not surprised. My uh, my wife, who's an avid reader of uh, cookbooks, tells me that one of the celebrity chefs um, defined that the essential difference between home cooking and restaurant cooking is butter and salt. Yes. Um, uh, so I'm not surprised that restaurants really are quite reluctant to reduce their uh, their salt, if not their butter. It's a great lost opportunity because most cooks also know that you don't need salt for the success of almost any recipes apart from the ones that raise, raise a pastry with a sodium bicarbonate uh, method. Ken, I think we're straying into cooking here rather than evidence-based medicine. Yes. Uh, <laughs> So sticking, sticking to the evidence, um, we've got another clutch of papers about cancer and uh, HPV as a cause of uh, two sexually transmitted uh, cancers. Anal cancer predominantly in men and uh, cervical cancer, of, of course, in women. What was the message there on the uh, cervical cancer um, paper, Ken? So uh, I... Our readers may remember that a few years ago when the HPV vaccine was being introduced into the high schools for adolescent girls, a prominent clergyman from Ontario advised families not to have their daughters immunized for fear of uh, encouraging uh, earlier debut and more risky sexual behavior. So we have a large cohort paper in Ontario comparing girls in the two years before and the two years after the introduction, the wide introduction of the vaccine in the high schools, looking at um, surrogate markers of sexual activity, namely adolescent pregnancy and non-HPV STIs. So they, although those are surrogates, Ken, they're pretty important, aren't they? I mean, this is, this is what, we're, uh, what people are really worried about. Yes, pregnancy they are, STDs. and they're, they're robust in the sense that they're easily measured and uh, fairly easily detected. 
So, in fact, they found no change in the rates and um, are saying that at least in the early years of after the use of this vaccine, uh, parents should be reassured that they're doing the right thing to protect their daughters. Yes, I mean, it's certainly some sound evidence about little change in um, school students. I think the note of caution that, that I would sound there is that... Um, there may yet be a change in behaviour in young adults. We uh, this research doesn't tell us, and it's uh, I'd have thought it was maybe the uh, the late teens, early twenties adults who were the ones likely to be more sexually active, and uh, perhaps the ones we should be worrying about whether they've changed their behaviour or not. That's correct, and I think we have similar concerns about a lapse of precaution in men who have sex with men, and that's what the anal carcinoma paper is about. And the authors talk about um, developing programs for screening for anal carcinoma akin to pap smears for cervical carcinoma. So that's something to keep an eye on in the future. And in much the same way with um, uh, cervical cancer, there is, a, there is precancerous change, and uh, this can be picked up by, by smears. Um, of course, there haven't been the uh, screening RCTs and the research to show that this saves lives. But it, uh, by analogy, it does seem to be um, uh, good practice. For and analogously, uh, the authors seem to uh, believe that early detection can lead to early treatment and avoidance of the much more problematic, full, fully developed anal carcinoma. Yeah. Anything else that struck you in the uh, practice or uh, letters or humanities section, Ken? Uh, there was a man with a funny eyelid, John. What was that about? Yeah, I I don't know how uh, whether this is just a, a strange case or uh, or something familiar to people. Floppy eyelid syndrome, and um, apparently people with COPD or, or those who are particular over, overweight can have this problem whereby their uh, eyelids are a bit floppy, and if they roll over in bed and rub their face on the pillow, the uh, eyelid can sort of uh, not cover the eyeball anymore, and they can get sort of an, an abrasion and irritation of the eyeball and wake up with sore eyes and wonder why. Of course, the cure yeah. is to wear an eye patch or sleep on your back. I was very touched by uh, an essay in the humanities section uh, this time uh, called Grief's Extraordinary Power by... Class of 2016 medical student from the University of Ottawa, Daria Karawaki. I mean, this has quite a local story for us, Ken, doesn't it? It's not not just from Ottawa. It's uh, there was a bit more to it than that. Yes. Uh, so the young girl who died was actually staying with her aunt in Ottawa, and as it says in the journal, her aunt is uh, one of the deputy editors at the journal. So. We, we were all kind of inside the family circle hearing about this very unexpected uh, death of this young woman. The piece is not so much about the death, but about the grief in the class and in this person and about uh, what she learned about herself and about grief and its recommended reading. Yes, I, w I was particularly struck that, that, by that and um, it brought home to me something I've experienced that... Um, that death and grief has the power to bring us to awareness, to show us what we've forgotten and ultimately to make us whole again. And I think the theme that, um, that the author was picking up was that um, we can sort of rediscover our lost talents, the, uh, the music that you gave up or um, the hobby that you had that uh, you've let drop through medical practice and, and help us maybe reconnect to um, the people who we were and who we actually are. Yes. Um, I can't help mentioning the, um, the article that we've got on uh, the um, Mayo Clinic cigarette packets and <laughs> the uh, JAMA ashtrays. 
It's a wonderful collection of uh, memorabilia from um, the days before we really knew that smoking was bad for you and uh, the way that a number of medical societies um, have teamed up their branding with uh, cigarette companies. So uh, quite a good, uh, interesting look back to what was happening not so long ago, in fact. And in fact, uh, history has a way of coming back because in the Montreal Metro these days, you can see vaping being advertised with the same old-fashioned, high-society, sexy ads. Yes, electronic cigarettes. This has been John Fletcher and Ken Flagel for CMAJ Podcasts.